calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Riders Jam Podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. We're coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker today on this holiday week. Hope that uh, everybody is able to see their loved ones. Hope you're vaccinated. Hope you're safe. All of that stuff. Uh, we have Ruby with us today. Um, she's our last guest of the year, I think. Our last boarder. We'll have more guests on the show. She has been a spitfire um, and also has fallen asleep on my computer multiple times. I am not a small dog guy, but I will say, boarding dogs since Max is passing, it's been nice to have some dogs that just like chill with you on the couch. But enough of that. Uh, it's such a fantastic show today. Um, I came across uh, Kaya Abdullah on Twitter, as I oftentimes find writers, as you know, sort of watch who people are talking about and who people are talking to. And, and she came across, and I did a little research and like literally hit her bio. And, uh, there's just some dark ass humor in that bio. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, I really like her. This is going to be a good episode. And she's done some really cool stuff. Like just again, looking at the bio and look at the writing and the things that she's done. I was like, yeah, yeah, she's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, her book next of kin is available in the UK right now. But if you listen to the show, you know, uh, you're here in the States, you can order that from Waterstones. Uh, which is a British bookstore. I have it coming right now. It should be here in the next few days. Very excited about that. So uh, Kaya is an author and, and tra uh, travel writer from London. Um, her novel, Take It Back, was named one of the best thrillers of the year by The Guardian and The Telegraph and was selected for an industry-first audio serialization by HarperCollins in The Pigeonhole, which is awesome. Um, if you know, you listen to the show, you know I love audiobooks. And Truth Be Told uh, was her follow-up, and that was short-listed for a diverse book award and next of kin is the times crime book of the month in September, 2021. So she is very talented at what she does. Um, her books have been, uh, getting lots of great reviews. I cannot wait to pick up next of kin. It's going to be great holiday reading. Uh, her work has also appeared all over the place. Times guardian, uh, financial times, telegraph, BBC, like, you know, 
just some small places. She's the founder of the Asian Book List, which is a nonprofit that advocates for diversity in publishing. And in 2014, and this is what got me, like all of this other stuff is amazing and great. Uh, but in 2014, she founded Atlas and Boots, which is an outdoor travel blog. And it has 250,000 people a month that read it. Again, if you listen to the show, you know, big, huge fan of travel. And I love people that go out and do that. And I love people that write about it. We've had some of those folks on the show because I just find they are fascinating. And oftentimes they have a great perspective on life. Um, If you are in a position of privilege where you can travel the world and go to other places, it just opens you up in a way that is hard to describe unless you do it. So really excited to have Kai on the show today. Uh, uh, Before we get to that interview, just a little bit of business. You know, the jam comes out every Wednesday. And our video podcast comes out about every Monday and Friday. It'll be a little sporadic over the break. We have some special things um, for you. But what you can do to help us out, you're listening to the show for free, help us spread the word. Think about the people in your life who love books and tell one or two of them about it. You don't got to spam everybody, but just tell one or two folks about what we're doing here. That is uh, surprisingly the easiest and best way for us to spread the word so we can help authors find new audiences. You can also uh, leave us a review. If you're holding an iPhone right now, you head on, you're at Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a written review and a star review, and those help tremendously. If you don't, if you're like me, you don't have an Apple phone, head on over to our Facebook page, The Writer's Jam, and leave us a review there. At thewritersjam.com, our website, you can check out the video podcast series. If you're looking for books, you can uh, read our book reviews. You can click right on the bookshop link and buy books from small and independent bookstores across the country. Sign up for our monthly newsletter. And for just a few bucks a month, you can support everybody on the Solid Listen Network by clicking on that Patreon button. And you get all kinds of bonus episodes and commercial-free episodes, all kinds of stuff. Nicole and Malls are like working overtime, building this network out. And you can get all kinds of stuff that uh, other people can't get. I think it's $5 a month. Nothing. It's like half a Starbucks coffee. So, uh, yeah, this interview was great. It's one of those where, like, um, our off-air, this sort of commercial break when we took a break to chit-chat for a minute, it was like 15 minutes, and it was fantastic. You will not hear any of that, uh, so I'm telling you the best story that you can't hear. But she is just such a fascinating person and has just a, a lovely perspective on the world a unique perspective on the world is very easy to talk to. Also, you know, I'm always down with anybody that likes being out in nature, traveler out in nature, writer, like, you know, we're going to have a good time. So I thank you for stopping by the bunker today to spend some time with me and our guest Ruby. I hope that this Thanksgiving is upon us, that you get to see your family, that you have the shots that everybody's safe, that you get the booster, all of that stuff. Don't hurt yourself playing football or whatever it is your family does after uh, we all eat a ridiculous amount of food. And I hope that you will sit back for the next 60 or so minutes and enjoy my conversation with Kaya Abdul. Yeah, I mean, that's the amazing thing. You know, you do have amazing connections between the big cities. I find what's really weird is, you know, in LA, nobody uses the buses or yeah. if, you, if you do, you know, you just need to be prepared to be, uh, you know, yeah. you know face a challenge. Um, 
and and the car culture is is the norm there and I find that really interesting and yeah so I really love I liked LA but I think that kind of took the edge off the city for me the fact that there's so much traffic and yeah. I just remember being in 10 lanes of traffic and it just looking post-apocalyptic and I thought yeah. this is how people get to work and that's that was yeah. just madness to me it's interesting I think as a writer the pandemic, I mean, I always, you always preface this. There's nothing good about the pandemic. The pandemic has killed millions of people. This has been a tragedy of epic proportions. The way it has reconfigured how we think about where we live and how we work is at least in, you know, major capital cities and, you know, places that have an affluence. It really is an interesting moment where it feels like this may actually be transformative for things like mental health, for like, uh, work-life balance, all of that stuff, it feels like is up for grabs right now. I hope so. And I hope some of it lasts. You know, recently I saw somebody tweeting saying, you know, we have daylight saving here. And they said, oh, you know, we're debating whether we want an hour of extra sunshine in the morning or in the evening. And really the debate should be, why are we spending all daylight hours at work? And yeah. so when we leave the office, we're doing it in pitch black and it's so true. And so I do hope it you know has some of these lasting effects but yeah. who knows you know we're adaptable but it, we're also unadaptable and so we go back to the default very quickly yeah i never uh george carlin i'm gonna mess this up but he basically said like i like people but i don't trust them in groups of three or more <laughs> that's <laughs> a great quote i love yeah, that it's like you know like everybody like we all agree like yes like parents should have new ways to think about work and raising kids and work-life balance and mental health and you just know 2024 people are going to be like, well, I'm back in the office 55 hours a week again. Yeah. yeah like you just, exactly. I fear that's the thing that's going to happen. And we're going to forget mm. that there's multiple ways to do a thing. No, I agree. <laughs> I agree. And I think, you know, we had this culture where we were glorifying the hustle, weren't we? And now there's all this conversation about mental health, yeah. but is it just a way to, you know, sell content on websites and are we actually interested in making lasting change? And yeah. so that's going to be really interesting. Yeah. So you're up there. Where were you born at? Where, where, where are you from? So I'm, I was born and raised in London, you know, spent the first three and a half decades of my life there, which is wow. why I say, you know, that's where my heart is. I was always a city girl. Um, but in 2014, my boyfriend and I, we quit our jobs and we travel around the world. And when we got back to London, I just thought, you know what, there's a life beyond this sort of cramped living and the commute and the pollution. And so we moved up here in 2018. Um, but it has been a funny time because, as you say, the pandemic has made me rethink things. And I think probably, you know, we're probably on our way back to London, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. So what did your parents do? Like my mother, up. yeah, my mother was a housewife. My dad worked in a factory, so very much a working class background. Yeah. Um, Tal Hamlets, which is the part of East London that I was born in, you know, is a very there's a lot of transients there. You know, the the kind of new immigrants settle there because it's probably the cheapest part of London. Yeah, and the child poverty rate now is fifty seven percent, and back then was probably similar or maybe even higher. Wow, and so huge amounts of immigrants there huge amounts of poverty there but for me you know it was so interesting because I, I think as a country we're coming to reckon with things like racism and you know Black Lives Matter has changed the national conversation but for me growing up in Tower Hamlets it almost insulated me from all of that because there were so many immigrants there and there was such a strong Bangladeshi community there Bangladesh is where my family are from 
I just felt insulated from it all because I was, you know, in, in inverted commas, among my own people. And so it yeah. was a really interesting dichotomy. Yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, that's the other thing um, that I think the pandemic has done is that, I mean, I've spent like, I've spent a, a good deal of my professional life in and around Black culture, my mentor, like all of this stuff. And so, mm. you know, one of the things that I can't remember who said it, but they basically said like people aren't protesting because they've just decided to protest when everything shut down. They weren't at work. They were able to do because if you're poor, you can't take a day off to go protest. Right. Mm. If you are if you're paycheck to paycheck, that's not a thing when you work from home. That's why you see millions of people suddenly do that. That did not mm. just arise. It arose because there was also this other thing that the work culture at least of this country i'm assuming of your uh, of, of england as well prevents poor people from really doing much outside of work like that's a yeah. feature of the system no absolutely it's yeah. to it's to keep you under the cosh and i think there was an extra layer growing up with my family certainly my parents and probably my local community as well because one of the things we're we're told now and i say we you know people of color are you should be grateful and and that's really yeah. it's tricky because you know, sometimes I look at where I would be in Bangladesh and I, and I do feel grateful, um, but I, I don't like to be told that I should feel grateful. But I think my parents' generation did feel very grateful. Sure. Um, and looking back, you know, I see some of the ways in which my dad used to interact with white people. And, you know, it hurts me to say this, but there was a level of subser subservience. You know, he used sure. to go into a store that was run by a white person and he would plaster on a big smile and talk to them in a very reverential way and when I was young you know that just read as respect and now it reads as subservience and that's quite a painful thing to to reckon with and so I think for for Bangladeshi immigrants you know there wasn't that um inherent pugnacious attitude it, it was gratitude and you know that's that's an interesting thing to grapple with as an adult you know rethinking the ways in which my dad used to interact with his you know local community yeah and you know it's the Yes, like like I've talked about this on the show so many times, like uh, white people and particularly white men, but white women, I think, are, are, are beginning to realize that they are also part of that system is that there literally is nothing you like. There's nothing I can do to make that go away because it's systemic and it doesn't mm. matter if I'm a good person doing my best. Like, that's great. That's literally the bare minimum. Right. And, and that yeah. doesn't change those interactions because people of color never know. Is this real? Is this not real? What's coming at me? Like, is this right? Like, this is a, a thing that I think white people are beginning to be like, oh, shit. Like, this is it doesn't matter if I'm a good person, whatever good person means. Mm. There are systems in place that you just automatically get credit. Right. Because, like, I don't yeah, have to I worry mean, about that. And like, that's exactly. the thing I need to think about. And we teach it to our children as well. You know, Tyler sure. Coates writes about this and how he took his young son to I think he's either his first day at school or he was in a playground and he was just boisterous and running around and zipping around and just being a young kid and and his reaction was you know just calm down just be quiet just fall yeah. in line and, and that's really painful to teach your kids that because you grew up with that fear yeah that they need to internalize that fear as well and yeah you know things will change with movements like BLM but as you say they're systemic you know and, and it's yeah. going to take a long time to unpick that and their features, not bugs. Like, that's what I always tell folks. Like, this oh. is not like, this is not a, like, oh, everything's fine. And there's just this thing. No, no, no. 
everything is the way that it should be. And that the bugs are when we try to say like, actually, hang on, that's a bug in the system. And understanding that for white folk, I mean, for people of color, for if you've ever been a part of a minority mm. community, what I just said is not groundbreaking. Right? Like, um, and, and that I think has been, you know, the, an outcome of this pandemic is that yeah. there has been this time away where suddenly we're looking at, oh, work isn't a structure, work is fake. Like mm. the structure of nine to five is fake. We can exist <laughs> without that. Well, if that crumbles, then everything's up for grabs then. Yeah. I mean, look, was it was it Keynes who said, you know, in the future we'll be working 15 hours a yeah. week? And, you know, that hasn't transpired. And so what are the systems? You know, again, I read something that said, when you feel like you haven't been productive, don't feel bad because you're only being productive to make the 1% richer. Yeah. And that's the case for most of us. And so, <laughs> you know, as you say, it's a, it's a system that keeps you keeps yeah. you in place. So, yeah, it's interesting. So, uh, so you know, I, I, we tweeted about this because your bio is darkly hilarious. And I read it and was like, uh, yeah, I'm getting you on the show because I, <laughs> I love that. Um, so you had big family, a lot of kids. Mm. What yeah. were you like growing? Like, what were you like in that system? Like, who were you as the kid? I was I was a confident kid, and some would say overconfident. <laughs> but you know, here's the thing, Brad. Like, if you're if you're growing up in a family of eight children, as I did, you have to learn to shout. And if you don't learn to shout, you're never going to be heard. Yeah. You're never going to get your way. And so you eat fast, you talk loud, and you act like you know what you're doing. Oh my god, you you joke, but literally as a as an adult, <laughs> what I will do with my boyfriend is if there's a dish, I will cut it in the middle because I want my bloody fair share, okay? Because I grew up <laughs> shoveling that shit down yeah. because I wanted my fair share. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was I was a confident kid. You know, at school I was I was studious. I was probably, you know, I was I was smart, but I also knew that I was smart. You know, yeah. I was one of those twerpy kids. Yeah. Um, I'm familiar little, with that. Yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> but you know, I knew I knew where to draw the line. So I was always a little bit cheeky with my teachers, but I knew, you know, the difference between being cheeky and disrespectful. And so yeah. I loved school, you know, I loved reading, I loved academia. And so yeah, I think I think that was a really nice balance. And you know, one of the things. I always say is that older siblings are kind of unsung heroes. And so in the pecking order of eight children, I was number six. And so I was one of the younger ones. Yeah. And I really think having older siblings changed my life chances and gave me a start in life that maybe my older siblings didn't have. And so I'm really, really grateful for that. Yeah, it, there's been a lot of uh, studies, particularly about athletes, people that become professional athletes, oftentimes they are middle or younger children because uh -huh. they're always competing against somebody who's bigger <laughs> and better than them. And so oh, okay. like you see like Venus Williams and, and Serena Williams, well, Venus was the older. And even when she, at the beginning of her career, everybody was like, Serena's gonna be the good one because who was she competing against her whole life, right? She was competing against another amazing professional as a younger person. And yeah. so you have more of those reps against people that are better than you. Uh, I mean, better like athletically or whatever. Just, yeah, they're yeah. bigger and they're just bigger, right? They are smarter, older. Yeah. Um, and so that does not shock me, right? To hear that like, oh yeah, I had like some good models for, and even probably some sibling competition, like, well, they're doing this and I need to do this as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, because my parents didn't read, write or speak English, I think I would have probably struggled without those older siblings. Sure. And I just remember, you know, small things like I remember somebody saying when in Rome and my, my mom couldn't tell me what that meant, but my right. sister could, you know, so I said to her, what yeah. does that mean? And she explained to me or 
being in a restaurant and she taught me oh when when you're done choosing what you want to close the menu to signal yeah. to the waitress that you're done and so even small kind of social cues yeah my siblings helped me become the person I am today and so yeah I'm really grateful for that yeah and then also probably figuring all that out in a big family with kids probably made that that's probably where some of that confidence came from yeah like you knew yeah. that there was a protective layer of people that were even if you were fighting or not getting along it's still you guys against everybody yeah, you've else got, you know I, whatever happens in life you yeah. know i've got my sisters i've got five yeah. sisters and so i can call on them oh my god yeah i mean i i joke because i i suffer from hay fever and th there's a drug that i need which is prescription only but guaranteed one of my sisters will always have it in her house so it's like whether i need hard <laughs> drugs or soft drugs you know I yeah. call, text one of my sisters and be like oh do you have this in the house i probably shouldn't be you know admitting this publicly don't 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 take drugs off your siblings guys um but, but yeah, hay fever know, stuff we're okay with hay fever stuff we're okay with yeah. you know it's all right <laughs> that's so, what we were talking about hay fever stuff yeah exactly uh, so yeah no it's nice it's it's really nice and that must be i would think i mean i come from a small family but my my family writ large is huge but right. like when i came from that just a generation down it was like everybody had nine brothers and sisters and it was that way for a really long time so wow. cousins and shit are just everywhere it must be hard. like, is it hard to live where you live now? I mean, is that part of that draw is like, it's quiet. Yeah. It's quiet. Well, it was, <laughs> it was the draw, but it's also, you know, the flying, the ointment now. And yeah. my sisters will, you know, we are in a WhatsApp group as most people are with their families for better or worse. And, you know, they'll always have impromptu meetings and it's not always easy for me to go down to London in, in, with short notice. And so, yeah. I get FOMO. I, I don't know if you, you, you yeah. know what, you know, fear of yeah. missing out. So yeah. I get severe FOMO when all my family <laughs> are together. And so, yeah, that's difficult. Yeah. It's funny. My girlfriend has two sisters and they're all close um, and they all live within 20 minutes of each other. And it's both the best thing and the worst <laughs> thing. Yeah. And I'm like, that's it. like my, my sister's five years older than me. And then we have a half sister who's a few years older. So we were never really in the same place. So right. we don't have that. So I see that and I'm like, well, that sounds awful. And she's like, it is, but it's also not right. Yeah. Like it's, but like, it's, you just don't understand if you, those people are around you all the time when they're not, you miss them. Even if you yeah. don't miss them. <laughs> yeah. And look, you know, our get togethers are loud and raucous and you know conducted yeah. in two different languages with food and music and arguments and you know it's great grounding for a novelist for example um yeah. but yeah i do miss it i do miss it yeah and it's, you know it, in london i can choose whether to attend those or not so yeah. i can keep them at arm's reach when i need to yeah. as well but it's funny you know for me like uh because i laugh like part of the reason i want to come back to london is i literally have like probably 40 to 50 writers that I keep up with who are there. And when I come there, it'll be like a big family thing. Like, you know, we will mm. all get together. We all don't know each other that well because it's hard, you know, you know, you, you do travel stuff. When you travel, you sort of collect people and some yeah. of them you keep around. And, and, and that is, I, even though I grew up at, like sort of as an only child in this family, I derive so much joy out of those big, crazy where it's just out of control and people may look at that and go, well, it's loud and it's insane. How are you getting anything from that? And I'm like, how do you not? Like, this is the energy of life. <laughs> well, exactly. And I think, you know, being an introvert does serve writers well, but I think 
for me, in order to write fiction, I need to be out in the world. I need yeah. to be engaging with people, chatting to people. And that's where I get my energy, you know, my creative energy from. A hundred percent. And, you know, I don't think when I worked at Technology Review as a magazine out of MIT, is a technology magazine. And um, our art director used to have days where he would just take the art department and say, bring your sketchbooks. We're just going to go walk Boston. And I want wow. you just to be inspired by things because he was like, this is how we're going to have great design in the magazine. Not by sitting here and saying, how are we going to design this magazine? Great. It's by freeing your mind and allowing it to go where it needs to go. And I think writing is the same way. Like you have to be out in the world, even if you're not talking to everybody, like you see things and hear snippets or questions arise. And that sort of sends you into places. Well, that's why the pandemic has been so hard for so many of us. I, I mean, know. a lot of people have loved it because they've been able to sit at home and get on with their works in progress. Yeah. But for me, it's been so hard to write fiction because I need to, as you say, get those cues, listen to conversations, eavesdrop. You know, I might hear a distinctive laugh and think, oh, yeah. I'll be having that. And so, yeah, that's so <laughs> intrinsic to my work. I mean, I carry this little booklet around with me everywhere I go. It drives people crazy. It doesn't matter where we go. And I'm like, I never know. I never know. Mm. And, you know, you do that enough as a as a young person and you're like, I'll remember it. And then immediately you forget whatever just happened. I just have these books filled with things. And I'm a nonfiction writer. I just never know where that inspiration is going to come to help me form the question that I care about answering. Yeah, no, like, I agree. Mm. So when you got to high school, what were you like? Were you like, what was the plan? Like, were you like one of those kids that's like, I know what college I'm going to go to. Like, I know what I'm going to do. Or were you like, figuring this out by the seat of your pants. It's interesting because I always wanted to be a writer. So even really? when I was, yeah, you know, I, I knew from a very early age and, you know, I tell this story of even when I was about four, my mum, I was, I was a little bit of a twerp, as I say, and I, I would, I would pretty much refuse to eat unless she told me a story. And so that culture of storytelling was yeah. really important. And and, you know, we're not super close now, but that was one of the primary ways in which we bonded. And so I always wanted to be a writer. I remember leaving what we call primary school. So yep. you're about 10 or 11 years yep. old then. And my primary school teacher gave me a notebook. And as you say, you know, said to me, when you hear interesting snippets of conversation in public, write it down in your notebook and use it in your stories. And that early vote of confidence was so wow. important to me. Yeah. And so, you know, I knew that either I wanted to be, you know, an author or a journalist of some sort. And so at the age of 14 uh, in the UK, you do what's called work experience and you get a placement at a company mm -hmm. for two weeks. And I was at the Sunday Times magazine in London. And so I, Holy I shit, that's amazing. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so, but in a way, I kind of lost my nerve, Brad. And so I think... I followed the money. So when it came to choosing my degree at college, you know, I followed the money. I did computer science, yeah. worked in tech for three years, um, you know, and they were, they were happy years. Like I was earning a good wage. I was yeah. doing interesting work, but then eventually I saw a pitch, um, a call for pitches from a magazine called Asian woman, which was like a monthly consumer glossy. And I pitched a column and had it published. And I remember seeing my name in print for the first time. I was 24 and I thought, oh, this is what I want to do. You know, this is my dream. And so um, there, was a, there was a role going there and the editor said I could have it, but this was heartbreaking. My notice period was three months and she couldn't wait that long. And so I had to say no to the job. 
And I thought, well, look, I've built up a little bit of a financial buffer. Um, why not just hand my notice in? And so that's what I did, you know, saw the kind of sand trickling out of the hourglass, you know, three months, two months, one month, and then another role came up at the magazine. She offered it to me and I took it and I haven't looked back really, yeah. you know, did, did a few years of freelancing and then was working on my book in the, on the side as well. So we're going to go back and now we're going to trace through some of that stuff because I'm always, right. I'm fascinated by the journey that people go through. Precisely. Nobody gives you a manual. Even when you publish a book, publishers yeah. don't give you a manual and say, this is what's going to happen. You yeah. just have to feel your way through it. Yeah. So you're in high school, you know, you want to be a writer. You do this mm. thing. The two weeks you get a little in over your head. So as you're getting ready to go to college, are you thinking I can't do this writing thing at all? I well, so here we have you do A levels before you go to college. And so you do those for two years. And I, I was kind of hedging my bets, actually, because I did journalism. And then I also did maths and IT. And so I kind of kept my options open because I yeah. wanted to become a journalist. Um, and then I did think about it seriously, but because journalism is such a competitive field, <laughs> I didn't see anybody who looked like me, you know, making it in the media. Oh. Um, as I said, you know, I just followed the money. I, I grew up in a family that where there wasn't a huge amount of money. I knew yeah. I wanted to get on the property ladder. I knew that that would be very difficult as a writer without independent wealth behind you. Yeah. And so, yeah, as I said, I followed the money and, you know, in a way I don't, part of me regrets it and thinks, you know, I should have backed myself, but part of me doesn't regret it because in order to be a writer, I needed that financial buffer yeah. that I built through yeah. tech. And I know so many writers who are, you know, either struggling or a little bit bitter because, writing has sucked the joy out of their life because they've been you know on this hamster wheel trying to make it yeah whereas early on i was able to not set myself up for life but set myself up enough that i could get on the property ladder and then say you know what i'm going to take a 50 percent pay cut and, yeah. and try this thing yeah and so yeah i did always know even throughout my degree i was blogging you know so i, I was on you know blogspot.com and <laughs> yeah you know that was and my outlet i was were your parents support? Like, were they like, if you want to be a journalist, that's fine. Or were, or were they like my parents, like writing's great. Why don't you get a teaching degree? Cause that's a job you can make money at. Well, I, you know, <laughs> honestly, I don't even think my parents know that you could make a living from being a writer. And yeah. so to them, that would just be a very alien concept. If I said, Oh, mom, dad, I want to be a writer. So what the fuck is that? You know, sorry. I don't know if I can swear. You can, um, because my parents basically said the same thing. I mean, it was like, right. yeah, you seem to be pretty good at this, but that's not like, you need to have yeah. something that you can make money at. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? I don't blame them because sure. if my niece or nephew were to say to me, and sometimes I do get emails from, you know, hungry young whippersnappers yeah. trying to be journalists. <laughs> and I, yeah. I, I'm genuinely in two minds of what to tell them because on one hand, you know, of course you should follow your dreams. But on the other hand, it's really bloody hard to make it as a writer, yeah. especially if you don't have the pedigree in this country, which usually means private school, usually means Oxbridge, usually means you know having a network of elite people who can yes. get you through the door and so you know if you're working class I just I don't really know what to tell you and what I do tell them is look start early um don't wait to get past the gatekeepers you know start a blog or a podcast yeah. or a newsletter to build your tribe so that when you come to write you have an audience waiting for you and so it's yes. yeah it's tricky it's and we you know I talk on this program all the time about Venn diagrams and like mm -hmm. I think all writers have a certain amount of like we did a certain amount of life experience that you have that makes you want to become a writer. And then like for us, it's like, oh, that poor working class thing. If you wait, 
it's not going to happen for you unless you come, unless your last name's Rockefeller. Like it's not, that's <laughs> yeah. not the way it happens in this country. And like, obvious, like my boss at Technology Review is uh, British. He, he went to, I think he went to Oxford. Mm -hmm. So like the class system for him was like, you know, you grow up, you see it. In America, we act like that doesn't happen. And I'm like, uh, that shit exactly happens. It's also, it's also knowing how to engage with those worlds, you know, yeah. code switching, being able to have the yeah. right accent, being able to tell the right joke, being able to catch the right reference. And so it's, it's the fabric of that world. Yeah. And I think a private education accelerates, you know, your ability to engage in that world. And there are other ways, you know, I'm working class, but you read a lot, you, you know, watch a lot of interesting programming and you know it's but it's, you always feel like you're the different one there right like whenever i'm running over because when i worked at wired like mm. i was there at 98 to 2003 i was covering entertainment i was at the heart of this entire world transformation yeah. and i was in rooms with people that have billions of dollars and i was always interesting because i had stories about being a poor kid and like <laughs> i got a funny accent right? right and so even though i was there it was mm. always and you, like this was a venn diagram obviously we experienced that differently yeah. mm. but i'm telling you a thing and you're like well yeah i could tell you a thousand stories of i'm here but i'm here and it's very clear that they're making it clear through subtle ways that i'm different and not really there it's interesting isn't it because <laughs> You know, I mean, publishing, there's a, as you say, you know, there's a thousand things to say about publishing, but the last, um, the, the literary festival I went to last, I turned up to, you know, the green room where you pick up your lanyards and I asked somebody, oh, you know, where do I go to pick up the lanyards? And the, and the first thing she asked me was, oh, are you a volunteer? Mm. And so rather than think that I was an author, you yeah. know, the automatic thing you go to is, am I a volunteer? Yeah. And, when I said, no, I'm an author, you could see on her face the mortification that she just assumed yeah. that I was a certain way. But I think, you know, I'm less sensitive to this stuff because as I said before, Brad, you know, I grew up in an area where I didn't actually face a lot of racism, you know, yeah. because I was among my own people, you know, in inverted commas again. <laughs> yeah. um, and so when I, when I do encounter things like that, it's kind of water off a duck's back, but I can understand why if you have grown up facing this yeah. sort of attitude throughout your life, you would take a very hard line against it. And so, you know, sometimes people say to me, well, you're far too forgiving of what they call microaggressions. And of course it's, you know, it's never intended with malice, but you know, a million, million incursions have, do have been done without, without any malice intended. And so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the industry will change. It's just going to be slow, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I don't even know if it will, right? Like I sort of believe again, like, I think that uh, there's that el this element doesn't go away. Like humans, mm. I mean, I tell like this is the, the discussion I always have with folks. If you go out in nature, nature is not the same. If you go anywhere, there's stuff like different species, plants, everything is different. The only time you see when it's the same is a farm, right? And that's mm -hmm. cultivated. And so yeah. if you look around and your personal life looks like a farm, understand you've cultivated that because mm. the state of nature is not sameness. That's it, sameness doesn't grow. Sameness mm. eventually dies. And I think there's always going to be an element of humans. Doesn't matter who we are. There's going to be an element that is like, nope, sameness is just where that's just I'm the right way, yeah. right? Like it's, and they believe it's the right way because mm. they don't understand that like that is a death sentence and thought in you know progress and even in people right like if you you don't want to be Hemingway's cats right like you know they're they've been inbred for 70 years <laughs> and now they all have problems right I like mean, look, that's the thing if you want a healthy <laughs> literary culture you have got to 
instill stewardship among diverse audiences because the world is changing. There are so many things competing for our attention, Netflix, yeah. Snapchat, TikTok. And so publishing will die if it doesn't change. And so I think it will. You know, I think I have to be optimistic about it. Otherwise, yeah. I would just bloody give up. Well, I mean, I think it will change. But also, we also have to understand that diversity means a lot of things because the, sto the, the story that we make people tell is like, well, I'm black or mm. I'm Asian or like as if you don't have 50 other things like being working class comes with its own thing. Being a woman, yeah. being a mm. guy comes with its own stuff. And we have to understand that, like, you can't just say diversity and then put that on the backs of black and brown people and go, well, we just need that. And yeah. then it'll be better. It's like nah, that reduces people to one story and nobody's one story. Especially because, you know, when you capitalize on their trauma and you expect yeah. them to write about their trauma yeah. in order to get published. And, you know, that is changing, you know, yeah. it is slow, but I, you know, like I said, I have to be optimistic because yeah. I, and I would just, I would just be having three glasses of wine instead of one. <laughs> if I'd have known, I would have poured myself a Manhattan. I'm drinking water. <laughs> we can pause. Uh, we can pause back. We're actually going to take a quick break uh, and then we're going to come back and talk about um, your life in tech and then the travel writing stuff, because uh, that's that's the stuff that, outside of the dark humor in your bio. Like that's the other stuff that I find fascinating because um, a travel, I think, is the best thing a human being can ever do. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll be right back. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Okay. Uh, so as always, you guys missed a very, very lively conversation, a little more ranty on my part this time, but you will never hear any of it. Uh, but it was fantastic. Um, so last we were talking like you were sort of splitting time between computer science and journalism as you were going. So you go to college and decide on computer science. Yeah. And yeah. what year is this? Oh, God. Uh, 2000. <laughs> oh, so like it's the height of like you're at the height of the dot. Com. It's right before yeah. the implosion. And like, yeah. I mean, it was probably before, you know, tech got really sexy, you know, like the Silicon Valley bros and all of yeah. that stuff. But it was definitely on the upswing. And yeah. so 
had I chosen to stay, like all my friends who studied with me, you know, are doing really well financially now because, of course, yeah. you know, some of them studied Java, for example. Now Java seems a bit of a dinosaur language. But of course, if you've got 10 years of experience behind you, you're earning good money. And so, yeah. yeah. And so after I swapped careers to write, you know, there was still a little part of me that did wonder, oh, God, you know, should I have stayed in tech? You know, I'd be rolling in it now. <laughs> yeah. But, well, yeah, you know, but then sometimes, you know, if you if you do something, it's a cliche, but, you know, you find something you love, you never work a day in your life. And so sometimes I see them working all hours and sometimes not doing work that they're passionate about. And I feel that I did choose the right thing, you yeah. know. Um, and were you I writing think, when you were working in tech or was were you just like head down no, making it work? I was writing. I was blogging, you know. So I was blogging on my little blog spot, you know, kia-abdullah.blogspot.com. Um, so and, we're head yeah, to the Wayback Machine and see what that looks well, like. Well, you know? yeah. <laughs> God, please, please don't. Please don't. Some of that stuff's been deleted. Um, and rightly so. But yeah, I mean, look, as a young, you know, British Asian woman, I had a lot of stuff to say. And I had, you know, a very small readership, but a very engaged readership. And so even throughout, you know, my three years in tech, I was blogging uh, weekly and wow. just having all these all this feedback and comments. And so that just kept my, you know, and maybe there's a bit of ego in all writers. You know, some yeah. will say, I don't care about the readership. I just like to write. And I don't always know if I believe that, you know, as writers we want to be read and so yeah. that gave me a little early taste of yeah. what it's like to be read and what it's like to have that interactivity um and, and so yeah when I, too that you don't need somebody else to, i mean i think the beautiful thing about blogging is it teaches you oh i don't i mean editors are great uh mm. publishers are great publishing uh agents are great but you don't need that to get people to respond to you no no and there's no gatekeepers and that's why yeah. i say you know i mean look blogging has fallen out of favor a little bit you know it's not in vogue anymore but I you know blogging was my first love and I still yeah. think that it's got a value um and there's a value to sometimes dashing off your thoughts and in this climate you know that can be dangerous because with the advent of social media and you know we, we often see this this pylon culture I, I do dread to think you know when I was 22 you know would I have written something that would have got me cancelled and so on and, right yeah, so it's tricky, but I also think as writers, self-censoring and getting into self-censoring is a dangerous area to be. And so it's it's so interesting, right? And and I don't know if it, I, you, I think you, no, I don't think I know you're a little bit younger than me, uh, but we're, we're roughly in the same sort of we've swam around in the same you know waters of the publishing world. You, you remember Lycos, and you remember yeah. Geo City. I worked, when I worked at Wy Wired, Lycos owned us. Right. Okay. Well, there you not, go. Yeah, I literally worked for Lycos. Yeah, like yeah, for like a hot second before Spanish Telecom bought it, and I'm like, well, now we've entered into a weird sitcom where a Spanish telephone company owns Wired.com. Um, yeah, it's this is the discussion when you hear like comics talking about like, look, these are jokes, and we need like to find a funny. You, we have to have places where we can miss, or else you're not going to have this anymore. And I both understand people that like get upset by that but also mm. as a writer i'm like mike i have a hard time writing these days because i sit down not that i write offensive stuff but it's just like okay i'm a white dude and mm. it doesn't matter how familiar i am and how much i've immersed myself in other places like i'm still gonna mess up right and yeah, yeah. i always tell people it ain't the mess up that's the problem it's how you respond to the mess up and like yeah. i'm comfortable responding to mess ups because we all fuck up but the mob doesn't always allow that to happen immediately 
right? Mm -hmm. For young writers today trying, like we had weekly newspapers, we had blogs, we had all kinds of places where you could sort of work out your voice and what you wanted to say and struggling with these things that we talked about on air and off air, class, diversity, like, and that's a gift yeah. today. Look, I don't, yeah, I don't envy young writers because if you put a foot wrong, that's going to be online forever. And so there's no period of forgiveness. And yeah. also, you know, you change, people change. I'm not the same person I was yeah. 10 years ago. You know, I made mistakes, um, yeah. but people move on and they learn. And in Britain, you know, and I think it was the editor of um, Teen Vogue who got sacked or her, her job got taken off her because of something she wrote in social media 10 yeah. years ago. And I just, I couldn't help but feel sorry for her. And people's, you know, the, the Overton window, so to speak, with the what's acceptable to talk about in public changes yeah. and it gets narrower and, and it flexes. And so what was acceptable to talk about 10 years ago isn't any longer. And yeah. to judge somebody on, so what some, on what they said 10 years ago, it's, it's very tricky. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't envy young writers. I think I'd yeah. I mean, because, you know, like, I mean, you said it. And so I'm going to just repeat it, but acknowledge that you said it, which is if I read my first book, uh, I'm a way better writer today. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> you know? like, uh, not that we were, you know, we were writing a history of stuff. So we didn't we weren't touching on these kinds of topics. But you just think like, I think you only get in. I think you should only get in trouble if you haven't changed. If what you said 10 years ago is exactly how you feel today. Again, mm. this is that farmer in the field versus the sort of nature being like we have to give people an ability to evolve and make mistakes and come back from that um because but i also you know to judge work on on the context in which it was written so for example i'm reading we need to talk about kevin by lionel shriver which you know i'm, I'm about two-thirds way through it, and i think it's exquisitely written and there are some problematic parts of it you know the ways in which the character describes black people and you know it's not necessarily offensive but it's a little bit uncomfortable yeah but you know am I going to chuck this book into the fire because of that no you know I'm going to judge it on a the time in which it was written and b the literary merit um and so I do think that there's this lean towards everything being unimpeachable you know that there are people who want to cancel friends because it wasn't diverse enough or yeah. the, the way you know joey was a misogynist or the way he treated some of some of the people and i think we are intelligent human beings and we can discern when something was done in with you know malice intent you know we yeah. come back to this and and we can you know we talk about safe spaces you know we can <laughs> make judgment calls you know we are grown-ups and yeah so it's tricky but you know it, even me saying this it is you know you think oh am i going to get in trouble because i'm buying into this whole snowflake narrative and so yeah it's a very tricky tricky age you know to be in the public eye yeah and i you know rarely talk i mean well we actually delve into this kind of stuff all the time because i think it is important but every time I do, I'm like, well, I wonder if this is the the joke I always make. Is this show's going to end my career? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, but I do think those, like the, the Friends thing in particular, like I always tell folks, well, now this is a marker for how we've changed, right? Like, it's actually good that we can look back that on people that enjoyed the show like me at the time, because yeah. I was like, this, these interactions remind me of what I see. And then years later, other people point out stuff and you're like, oh, this yeah. is this is a gateway for me to to change and for me to see how that should be in the same way that I think the best fiction creates empathy. Like if you're a reader of fiction, that is the, we talk about this all the time. It is the yeah. first time you embody other people's stories. And I think people that don't read, not that they don't have empathy, but like you struggle, I think with that because reading that it all happens in your head. 
the black characters, the white characters, the women, the men, the, it doesn't matter who they are. They're all up here. And if you like them, you are beginning to embody other people's stories in yourself. And that I think is the beauty of literature. And so we also have to understand people we don't like. We also have to understand unlikable people mm -hmm. and why they end up that way. And if you're not allowed to explore those things, I actually think that's really dangerous in terms of just human empathy and kindness, yeah. which is, I know is a weird take, but like, that's sort of where I get back to it. It's like, well, we've learned a thing about that time period or those people yeah. or the way in which they thought about folks. And it's important to understand that. So we don't go back there. So we don't do that. So we are more familiar with this and that there's now a dialogue about it. No, I agree. And, you know, <laughs> reading Donna Tartt, for example, who I love, you know, I think she's probably my favorite writer uh, and reading The Goldfinch, I just remember thinking, oh, you know, her treatment of minorities is a little bit uncomfortable because yeah. they're, they're always kind of kowtowing or, you know, the, the kind of the, the benevolent subservient person. And so, yeah. you know, but if I had read it 10 years ago, I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't have picked up on those things. And so I yeah. think just because we have changed, it doesn't mean that we need to judge the work more harshly. And I'm sure Donna Tartt will also change as a writer. And so I just think we need to be kinder, you know, and yeah. it's, that sounds trite, but yeah, let's just be a little bit kinder. It does, but I also feel like I'm okay. Like if I don't be trite, so like I tell people and they're like, well, I moved for love and that was stupid. I'm like, that's the only reason to move. Every, like if you move for a job, that's dumb. But if yeah. you, because you love somebody, I can't imagine a greater thing in the world to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Like we have this weird sense of like, what's okay and what's not. I'm like, why do you think leaving everything behind for a job with a company that doesn't care about you is a mm. positive? <laughs> so what makes you decide to quit this job and as you said, and as it says in the bio, take a 50% pay cut because that is a, you know, it's fine if you're in your 20s, but like, you know, mm. you get in your 30s and, and there is a trajectory that you are supposed to go on, yeah, right? Yeah. You keep going up the ladder and mm. I am like you, I stepped off the ladder and I know how I felt. Like, so what was it that made you do that? And how did you feel when you did it? I think <laughs> because I, I had always wanted to be a writer, I think it was easier for me. Um, the jumping off point was as I said you know seeing my name in print in that magazine and I thought god this is you know this is what I've always wanted to do and I was lucky enough as I said to have had that buffer I, co I couldn't have done it in my 30s probably and I was early enough to have that kind of elasticity in yeah. in, in your career and in my personality as well um and, and so yeah I just I just decided to do it but I also think having that background in tech I knew if things went tits up, as we say in Britain, yeah. there'd always be a job waiting for me. You know, I was yeah. qualified. I knew how to program. I knew how to code. There'd always be a job waiting for me. And I think that gave me a safety net. And so, yeah, I took the leap. And, you know, don't get me wrong, Brad. There were days when, you know, I was trying to get a mortgage when I just thought, you know, I wish I were one of my friends, you know, earning yeah. 70 grand, which is probably $100,000 yeah. know, a year. And, and life would be a lot easier. But now, now that I've, got financial stability I can look back and I can think yeah that was the right decision for me but again yeah. you know we come back to class I can understand why it's not the right decision for so many people and I understand why parents say don't you dare go yeah. and try and be a writer you know go and be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant you know yeah no it, it's true but also um I think 
I've told this story. Like when I went to graduate school, I worked three jobs. I had less money in the bank than I could take out twice. Like you don't know what poverty is until you're like, there's, there's just not money. There's nothing. Yeah. This isn't like a, um, I don't have money. It's like, uh, yeah, you're not fucking eating. Like that's what's, yeah. that's what you're doing. But I survived it and got through because I just took whatever job I can. There's not a job that's beneath me in this country. There's not there's not an honest day's work that I look down on and just think like, well, you're not living up to your potential, I think. And so now I sort of realize no matter what happens, I'm going to find a way through. Mm. Right. Like you have to have some of that having made that leap and like done it. You're like, yeah, I'll be OK. Like it may not be the, the route that I thought, but I'll be OK. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about bootstrapping? You know, th there's this, I mean, of course, in America, you have the great American dream and you work yeah. hard and you make, can you, we know, you make your way. Too? Can we put that in quotes? The American <laughs> yeah. dream? The American dream. <laughs> um, because, you know, we talk about bootstrapping and it's really interesting because I feel like in a large way I did bootstrap, but I also see the barriers. And sometimes you see people who are very successful and they think, oh, well, if I did it, that you can too. And without always acknowledging that, you know, you had secret help or yeah. somebody helped you along the way. And that's not always reproducible. Um, yeah. You know, that alchemy that got you where you are. And so I just was interested to hear your thoughts on bootstrapping. Yeah. You know, is it possible? Is it common? The, the lone wolf bullshit narrative of technology mm. stuff in this country is a thing that I probably early in my writing career, like fell into that narrative. But now that I've been around, I'm like, that's not, like, that's not a thing. It's not a thing. Yeah, yeah. Somebody somewhere has, I had a, a friend of mine, he taught, um, we I used to teach high school and middle school, like way back before I did any of this stuff. And uh, my friend, Ricky, I'll never forget him, black guy. And he taught and he ran this black student organization. And he told this, what are you would tell him? Anybody that tells you they pull yourself up by their bootstraps has never put on boots. Because if you try <laughs> to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know what happens? You fall on your ass. Like you need help. <laughs> Right. Like there is there's mm. always help. Yeah. And anybody that tells you to do it on your own is either super privileged or is lying to you. And yeah. I've been like, yeah, like every step that I have made along the way, somebody has given me a hand. Yeah. You know, like you hear about, you know, Jeff Bezos and you hear about the Airbnb guys and, and they're often held up as examples of bootstrapping. But don't quote me on this, but I believe Jeff Bezos was given, you know, like a hundred thousand or three hundred thousand yeah. by his parents. And you think, well, that's not bootstrapping. My parents couldn't bloody give me a hundred thousand yeah. pounds. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a it, it is a myth, I think. I think you're it right. is. And, you know, like I've gotten used to building things with actual no money because I was telling this story the other day, like when we built our first website, like it was view source. I stole it from boingboing.net <laughs> and I put it into a Dreamweaver and I learned how to code. Like I wasn't going to school for that. Like, that wasn't like, that wasn't yeah. a thing. It was just like, well, I need to figure this out. So early days, I was like learning how to do that. And now with WordPress and different CMSs, you can build things. And I know mm. enough coding to like make stuff happen. And I can make it look like somebody with money did it. That's 25 years of doing that shit on my own because mm. we couldn't afford to pay for book promotion or whatever. And so, but I also went to Berkeley, right? So I had a, even though I'd been playing with computers since I was 12, then yeah. I also got to be around these other great people. And, and many of these great people helped me. Mm. So yeah, it may look like I did it, but I know the story, right? Yeah, and look, you know, some people can't afford computers when they're 12, right? And so, yeah. when, you know, when you have these Silicon Valley, you know, bros telling people, well, bootstrap, you know, learn to code. It's like, well, I don't have a computer. How can yeah. I learn to code? You know, so yeah, it's interesting. And I got it in 1984. And my, I, I, I've told this story in our book. My dad brought the computer home. 
uh, it was a Commodore 164, Commodore 64. And he put the box down and he said, I think this is going to be important. And he went upstairs. Like he didn't help me put it. He didn't know what it did. He didn't put it like I had to figure it out. I happened to have a teacher in this small ass 5,000 person town who'd been in the Air Force and he'd been a programmer. And now he taught math. So I went over to his house every Saturday from 7 a.m. until 2 p.m. And he taught me how to program. Oh, my God. How incredible. I mean, I tell people like he made my entire career because in 1984, I was telnetting around the world in this little Appalachian town. <laughs> and like that. that's some shit that people didn't do unless you telnet. were at a university. Yeah. That? Telnet. Yeah. Right. Like and I figured out how to like go through libraries and universities and like I would get on like BBSs in France or Germany. And suddenly I was talking to people around the world who were just mm-hmm. like me. They were older. They didn't know I was 12. <laughs> but that was the sense that I was like, oh, there's a world that I can get into yeah. that I didn't, that I'd never dreamed that I could. Mm. It literally changed the course of my entire life. I love stories like this, you know, and I, I, I mentioned alchemy, you know, what yeah. if that guy hadn't been there? Yeah. Or what if your dad hadn't picked that up? And so is that reproducible? You know, can no. we say to well yeah precisely so yeah it's 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 so interesting yeah and like i have my job now and i always tell people like nobody else could do this job because i've worked 20 years in publishing 20 years in tech like i've written books like i like i just got lucky this was not a plan well you got a little bit lucky a lot a lot of that was smart let's not be falsely modest brad come on i know i in fact i always tell people not to do this yes like once i got in and i sort of made a plan and i was bold enough to do it I did it. But again, there was a thousand hands along the way that if any one of those hands had not reached down, Mm. I don't know that I'd have made the next leap on the run. You know what I mean? Like, so whatever I've done is a result of a a thousand people Mm. that will, you know, that will never get recognition because I may not even know, you know, you may not even know what the hands were. Yeah. Yeah. No, but look, you know, you had to be fucking smart to get where you were, you know, and to work for MIT and Carnegie Mellon and places like that. And so I mean, I'm not a dummy. (laughs) No, no. You know, and I think it's important to say to people like us, you know, look, I see you. I see what you've done and what you've done is fucking amazing. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm so impressed by you. It's so funny. I feel like you listen to the show because anytime writers are like, well, I got lucky. I'm like, no, that is not a thing we say. Because humans are taught to be falsely modest, like you said, and particularly Mm. women and people of color are taught to be deferential to white folks. And I'm like, it's okay to say, yeah, look, there's some luck in getting your book published. There's some luck in being a bestseller. Mm. But uh, luck is an outgrowth of talent and determination and hard work. Like, and the first three come before the last one comes. So luck is literally the last thing in the in the in the boat. Exactly. Yeah. If it ever comes, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So so what so you leave to do like what what do you leave to do? Because you have some amazing shit going on here and it all happens not. I mean, it's like slow, fast, right? Like it took forever. So fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I left to become uh, sub editor at Asian Woman magazine, and then I worked my way up to features editor. So I was working there for a couple of years, and then I left to freelance, and I was doing that for a couple of years. Then I took was that a freelance job. move scarier than switching careers? No, because to be honest, you know, talking about a thousand uh, hands that help you, I was my my boyfriend was an accountant. You know, he was earning a good wage, and so I knew that I didn't have to 
you know, I could I could contribute like four hundred pounds, which is about seven hundred dollars yeah. to the yeah. mortgage. You know, and that's something we don't talk about enough. You know, so many yeah. writers are out there who specifically on Instagram, you know, who are living the writer's life, but they right. have independent wealth behind them. And so right. that freelance period wasn't as scary as it could have been had I not had a partner who yeah. was, you know, in a well-paying professional job. Um, but by the time we broke up, I had landed at Penguin Random House and was working <laughs> at uh, the travel brand there, roughguides.com, you know, and, and earning a decent wage again. Um, and is yeah, that where so the travel stuff started for you? Is that where yeah. you were like... Uh, I mean, look, I always wanted to travel because I I had a super conservative upbringing. And so, you know, my daily orbit was kind of school, library and home. And so when I as soon as I could travel, I was traveling a lot. Um, I think it's a poor thing, too. Right. Like when you're a poor kid, particularly if you read Mm. like and for me with the Internet and reading, I'm like, there's this fucking world that out there. Yeah. That like I feel like I would fit in there and I don't feel like I fit in here. Did you have some of that? A little bit. I mean, look, I I knew that I didn't want to just get married, you know, have kids, quit my job and be a housewife. And there are lots of women who want to do that. And that's yeah. absolutely fine. But I knew that that wasn't what I wanted. But growing up, that was basically, you know, what was on the cards for me um, culturally. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I always wanted to travel and so as soon as I could, I, yeah. I, I saved up for a year with my boyfriend. We quit our jobs and then, yeah, we just travel around the world. And that's when we set up our travel blog. And that just gained, you know, a huge readership and allowed us to carry on traveling. So why do you, because th- I think I have a theory about why things like that take off. Like, it does not shock me that that took off. Why do you think it took off? I think it was just very organic. You know, it wasn't that we had set out to create this business we always said we were going to write the article we wish we had read before we went to a b or c and so you know whether it's a remote hike in sri lanka or a dive in the galapagos what did what do we wish we had known before we got there and so that's how we started and then obviously everybody else going on that hike in sri lanka wanted to know and so it grew very organically and yeah, you know, and then I remember the first month we got 25,000 readers. We thought, wow, this thing has legs, you know, and now it, yeah, and now it gets 10 times as many and it yeah. pays our bills. And so, yeah, we haven't. Really and I'm sure there's also a little bit of like, holy shit. Like, yeah. like I was not expecting that to happen. No, you know, and <laughs> it took a long time for it to make money. You know, we were running it for about four years and it was as soon as we joined an ad network, yeah. that things just changed for us and we were like oh my god this is 10 times more than what we thought we would be making you know we thought we'd be making about 200 dollars, and it was about two thousand dollars to start off with and we thought wow yeah. you know this is legs and so yeah we we decided to carry on when anytime i travel and like i still have maps from when i'd go to london where i'd be like oh like uh miyamano in in budapest is the best fucking coffee i've ever had and it's <laughs> right across from the national theater and every time i go there that's the first place i go or when I'm in London, I'm like, oh, I, you know, I went out here in Soho. This is where I went. You know, Bar Italia is the place to watch the, any. If you want to see biking, go to Bar Italia. It's amazing. It's they got everything there. And to this day, like I'll have like 500,000 people that are looking at those maps. I haven't updated those maps in 10 years. Like I think that I think there is something about travel and exploration that is in the human DNA. And when people like you do that stuff, I think that it is, it's like empathy with reading. I think that it inspires a thing in people, right? We become aspirational because you're not thinking about you anymore, right? You're thinking about the world. Like, and that feels good. That feels better than thinking about yourself. 
This is my, I don't know if this is right, but like my theory about people like you that, that do these kinds of travel things touch on like the deepest, best part of who we are as people. I mean, I hope so. And I think, as you said, empathy is an interesting thing. And when you do travel, I mean, I think it was Mark Twain who said, you know, yes, travel is, well, you know, the quote. Okay? I, say, I talk about that quote all the time on the show. Right. Okay. I'll let you repeat it because I can't pull it out of the air. I always mess it up, but essentially it's like you can't be an asshole in travel. I, I exactly. Start, I'm yeah. like, you're you paraphrasing, know, but yeah. yeah. Like it's the greatest quote. And you're, and then you're like, well, I mean, you know, he was also a little racist in his stuff. So, you know, consider the source. But the truth of that, I believe, is a truth. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's hard Absolutely. to, it's hard to have a closed mind if you travel. If you travel, mm. and I don't mean like go to a res resort, I mean if you travel. Because you're just going to meet, you're going to find those Venn diagrams are everywhere. And sometimes it's 10%, sometimes it's 90%, but there's always something. There's never not anything. Mm, exactly. And I, that's just so powerful. And we can try to break down race and class and gender and like try to get people to be better and educate themselves and be okay with change. But there's something about meeting somebody in a different place and seeing yourself in them that is fucking transformative. Yeah. And as soon as I meet somebody who does travel, I feel better about them, you know, and that's, that's a tricky thing to say because a lot of people can't afford to travel, you know? Yeah. So of course there's that aspect, but people who have traveled and do travel, you immediately know that they have an open mind, you know, yeah. that they're, they're more broad minded, you know, again, that, you know, yeah. broad, broad brushes. brushes. But yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I, I love travel, you know, it's next to writing. It's my other passion. And so it's I can, well, you and I, I get, we're going to be friends because those are the two, those are the two things, right? Like those are the two things. Like, I think to be a writer, I've, I, I've been saying this for years. You have to feel like you're an outsider because you're always trying to figure something out. And like, there's a question mm. or a world or something that you, that you see that you don't quite get because nobody wants to read a book from the coolest guy in the room. Cause that book is like, I've walked in and everybody came around me and you're like, yeah, that's not my experience. No. And travel is the same way. The story is not about you. When you travel, you are external to it. And so how you decide to enter into that, somebody else's story says a lot about who you are, right? Yeah. Like, do you charge in and make that story about you? Or do you sit on the outside and learn and try to understand it and sort of slowly find your way into it yeah. like that. I think it reveals who we are. Mm, I agree. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and look, it's about bloody time we get back on the road, right? Yeah. It's why I'm coming overseas in May. Look uh, me so, up, look me up, please, Brad. So I'm a, I will just tell you this, everybody, like I have a list of everybody and I'm emailing all the London people and saying, look, we're picking a day in May. Because I'm not kidding. There's like 50 people that are in London. And I'm like, this is going to be the best hoo-ha ever. We're going to find it. a bar. And I pr it'll be just like this. Like nobody will know each other and everybody will know each other. Yeah. Right. There's Absolutely. A Let's do it. So then the last transition then is like, so then you have this blog and then you decide you want to write novels, which is like a whole different beast. I mean, look, I was writing my novel on and off for bloody ages, you know, even when I was, I mean, maybe not 10 years, but probably close to, but on and off, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, 10 is about at, the first novel. Well, yeah, you know, precisely. <laughs> yeah. And so when I was an Asian woman, you know, I, I dabbled and then I stopped. And then when we were traveling, I was writing. And so I always knew I wanted to write fiction. 
Um, and then I finally finished in probably 2017 and was sending it out, you know, had huge amounts of trouble getting an agent. Yeah. Um, and this, you know, I always talk about this. I couldn't get an agent in the UK. I, you know, queried dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And then as soon as I queried in the US, I queried five agents in the US, three wanted the book. And wow. it was, you know, after so much rejection, it was bloody amazing. And then did you not believe my... it? Were you like, well, this is not real? Um, it, it was a mixture of this is not real and it's about fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> you are a confident person. I like you. I tell people being a writer is being narcissistic enough to believe you have something to say and self-loathing enough to think nobody cares what I think. Exactly. Well, yeah, it's all interlinked, isn't it? Insecurity and narcissism. But yeah, partly it was like, oh, about fucking time. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, and then the two book deal with HarperCollins came quite quickly after that. Yeah, Because the so first book was well-received. Yeah, so Take It Back did really well. Um, yeah, it was published in America. It opened lots and lots of doors for me. You know, got so my name out published, there. It wasn't published in, in Europe and in, in, in England? It, no, it was. And then, okay. it got, uh, it, then it got a deal in the US. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it kind of really took off. Um, and then, yeah, it has allowed me to continue writing novels. I've got another two-book deal with HarperCollins. Um, and then my agent, you know, as soon as I filed book four, my agent's like, oh, can you send me ideas for book five yeah. and six? I'm like, dude, can I just take a month off, yeah. please? No. But yeah, I'm you're, emailing her on Friday with some yeah. ideas. And you're in the business. This is you're in the business of writing now. Like that's you're in yeah. the business of writing. And, yeah. you know, this is the other the trauma of success we talk about on the show all the time. <laughs> it's like you spend your whole life writing the first book and then they're like, we need one in a year. And you're exactly. like, the fuck? Yeah, it's precisely. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't know how I don't know how people do a book a year. So I'm going to slow down. So the four books that I have written so far, so three have been published, and then one's out next year. But I probably will beg my agent to be like, "Can I just slow down and do one every other year?" Yeah, well, let me know. Let me know how that conversation goes. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, no. If, if you want yeah. to be a career author, you've got to write one every year. I mean, it's the it's the joke, right? Because like. Because uh, next akin came out in September, right? So it's been out for just yeah. a couple months. Yeah. I mean, they they say like, look, if it's on, if it does well and it's like got some legs, we need another one before people forget your name. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's so that's the the people that can do that. Um, you know, you're in the same genre as my friend Janelle Brown, uh, who I've known forever, and like, it's I dickishly text her because I actually take the day off when her books come out because I love them. I read them in one day. And as soon as I'm done, I'm like, when's the next one coming out? She's like, <laughs> it literally debuted today. You're an asshole. And I'm like, just I know calm down, Brad. Yeah. Just calm I'm like, down. I'm kidding, but only sort of like, because I know you got the next one planned already. So like, just give me a little like, let me see some early chapters to which she's like, no, you're not going to fucking see anything. So it's like you're in the thing, man. And that's amazing because to make the leap like you did, um, whatever privilege or not, is still both an act of faith, a belief in talent, and then an execution of that. And that is, that's big, that's huge. And you have to sit Thank back you. sometime and just sort of shake your head and be like, oh, this worked. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, it worked. You know, cheers to that, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you are goddamn delightful. And I was 100% right to reach out to you. I think I did it on Twitter. I may have emailed you, but I think I found you on Twitter and like started looking and was like, oh, yeah, you seem absolutely delightful. Oh, um, well, thank you. And You're I appreciate delightful too. Thank you. 
you know, it's, I don't know if, if I come from an oral culture. So like, there wasn't like, it wasn't like my mom read, but like my grand, like the uh, people didn't, they, they literally mm. sat around a campfire and told stories. I love that though. You know? Yeah. But that's why I am this way because <laughs> Like in the same way that you had to like eat the food immediately, <laughs> if you wanted to talk, you had to be able to tell a story and engage yeah. a bunch of people that were oh, older yeah. that were like, if it was boring, they're like, we don't give a fuck. And I'm like, mm. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so my charm is fear-based. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, so Next to Kim is out now. Mm. People can get that anywhere. It's right. It's in America and over over in England. Yeah. It's available in the UK. Uh, there's no US deal yet, but fingers crossed. Very. But soon. I can get. But I order from Waterstones all the time, so well, I'm going to send all my people to Waterstones because exactly. uh, the mail goes overseas these days. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're delightful. Wonders of modern technology. Yeah. Uh, when I get to London, you are absolutely on the list because uh, I would love to buy you a glass of wine and sit down and do this when we're not recording. Please, thank you. All right, thank have you a great so much for having me. What a fun chat. I yes, absolutely was... loved it. Thank you. Well, there you have it. That was Kaya Abdullah. Her book, Next of Kin, is available in the UK right now. And you can also get it through Waterstones if you're over here in North America. Fantastic. Like, just lovely and is I think a great um a great interview. I, like I just I am so lucky to get to do this show when I get to to meet so many amazing people and it always energizes me when I get off the phone. Like literally I got done with this interview and was just like on one of those people highs that you get when you meet cool folks who have uh interesting stories and who share stuff with you. So uh the book Next of Kin, go get that now. Kai is great. Before we get out of here ask you to do a couple things at the top of the show. I'm going to remind you now. Make sure you tell your friends about us and leave us a review, either through Apple uh, Podcast. I always want to call it Apple iPod because I'm a 1,000 years old. Either through Apple Podcast, if you have an iPhone, or over on our Facebook page, The Writer's Jam. Don't forget, the Solid Listen Network is big and growing, so make sure you check out all the other programs on our network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen podcast queen, Molly McAleer. There's a whole bunch of Christmas stuff going on uh, that you are going to want to check out. Uh, this is my favorite time of year. Uh, the bad Christmas movies are on, and I will be glued to my TV for the next six weeks. Uh, that is meaningful. If you go check out the podcast network, you'll see why. Uh, we have the video podcasts here at The Jam coming out every Monday and Friday. You can catch those on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel. The Jam Proper, that comes out every Wednesday. All of the audio is there, both from the video podcast and this. Uh, so get yourself subscribed to wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't miss anything. It's the best way to keep up with what we're doing. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.